Salut et bienvenue. Hello there and welcome to City Breaks Paris, episode 21, Moments of History. While researching the series, I've come across lots of books which shed an illuminating light on some of the most interesting periods in the history of Paris. And so I thought, let's have an episode when we pause to just enjoy the work of some of those writers. Between them, they cover the Revolution, the Siege of Paris, the Dreyfus Affair, and from the 20th century, the period between the wars and the occupation of Paris. I've chosen six writers altogether. Between them, they've written novels, a diary and some biographies. And what they all have in common is that they make the history really interesting and they were really well written. All books that I enjoyed reading myself and which I'd be happy to recommend to anybody else. It makes perfect sense to me to take them in chronological order. So we're going to start with a novel, a very well-known one, The Tale of Two Cities, written by Charles Dickens, where the action is set in Paris at the absolute height of the French Revolution, and from which, through his imagination, you can really begin to understand what it was that caused the revolution. So, for example, in a tiny little scene towards the beginning of the book, one the Monseigneur has arrived at his grand hotel in Paris. He's brought all his servants with him, of course, and it takes four of them just to serve him his breakfast. And there's a great ritual described about the making of his chocolat, the stirring of it, the handing it over, the drinking and enjoyment of it. And this contrasts very much with a scene set in one of the poorer areas of the city when wine has been spilt and people are so desperate to get a little something for free that they rush to scoop it all up. Somebody was getting a cask of wine out of a cart, dropped it, and the hoop burst so that the cask shattered, as Dickens puts it, like a walnut shell and the wine runs out everywhere. The street is coppled and uneven, and the wine collects in little pools, wherever it can. And here's Dickens describing the desperation of people to get some. Quote, Some men kneeled down, made scoops of their two hands joined, and sipped or tried to help women, who bent over their shoulders to sip, before the wine had all run out between their fingers. Others, men and women, dipped in the puddles with little mugs of mutilated earthenware, or even with the handkerchiefs from the women's heads, which were squeezed dry into infants' mouths. Others made small mud embankments to stem the wine as it ran. Others, directed by the lookers-on up at the high windows, darted here and there to cut off little streams of wine that started away in new directions. Others devoted themselves to the sodden pieces of the cask, licking and even champing the moister wine-rotted fragments with eager relish. Much later in the book, the storming of the Bastille is described, with the words at the opening of the scene, Patriots and friends, we are ready, the Bastille. All the fury and frustration that's been building up throughout the novel is unleashed in one great rush, led by the wine-shop owner Defarge and his formidable wife. Quote, Flashing weapons, blazing torches, smoking wagon-loads of wet straw, hard work at neighbouring barricades in all directions, shrieks, Follies, execrations, bravery without stint, boom, smash and rattle, and the furious sounding of the living sea. But still the deep ditch and the single drawbridge and the massive stone walls and the eight great towers, and still defarge of the wine shop at his gun, grown doubly hot by the service of four fierce hours. Eventually they do break in, which gives Dickens the opportunity to describe some of the prison cells inside underlining the terrible conditions in which people who'd been held there had been kept. So here's what he writes about room 105 in North Tower. 
Quote, there was a small, heavily grated, unglazed window high in the wall with a stone screen before it so that the sky could be only seen by stooping low and looking up. There was a small chimney, heavily barred across, a few feet within. There was a heap of old feathery wood ashes on the hearth. There was a stool and table and a straw bed. There were the four blackened walls and a rusted iron ring in one of them. And the novel ends in the terror of so many of the guillotinings which took place. Dickens takes us inside the conciergerie and describes, as he puts it, the doomed of the day awaiting their fate. This particular afternoon, he says, 50 heads were to roll. Roll, as he puts it, on the lifetide of the city to the boundless everlasting sea. And as he says, even before they've left their cells to be taken off, to be executed, new occupants are being lined up, because there's going to be blood spilled today and more blood tomorrow. And the blood of these unfortunates will mix on the pavement with the blood of those guillotined yesterday. If you want to be taken right into the middle of the action, if you want to read a novel about the revolution from many viewpoints, those of the ordinary French citizens, the aristocrats, the revolutionaries, then a few hours reading A Tale of Two Cities has got to be a good thing. For an equally gripping but completely different take on the revolution, a book I would thoroughly recommend is Antonia Fraser's biography of Marie-Antoinette, wife of the King Louis XVI, both of whom were executed in the overthrow of the monarchy. It's a very comprehensive work, starts with Marie-Antoinette's birth and her childhood in the Austrian court in Vienna, with her extremely overbearing mother, who was plotting early on to marry her off well, and who did indeed succeed in getting this one of her many daughters to become the Dauphine, the wife of the heir to the French throne. She was taken to Paris as a teenager, married off to the future Louis XVI, and became, when he took over the throne, Queen Consort. There's a story of their early married years, the birth of their four children, two of whom died in infancy, the years when she reigned as queen amid the growing hatred for royalty and aristocracy in general, which culminated in the revolution and in the death of Marie Antoinette herself. The fifth section of the book is entitled The Austrian Woman, which is what the French began calling her, highlighting the fact that she was foreign and that they didn't think much of her. In that section is the story of her imprisonment, her trial and the execution of her husband. And in the last section, entitled Widow Capet, the title she was given after the execution of her husband to underline the fact that she was now nobody. In that section is told the story of her own trial and execution. You may recall I read some extracts from this book in an earlier episode, the one on the French Revolution. There was a description of a very young Marie Antoinette being forced to dress in front of all the courtiers every morning. I think I quoted the reaction of Louis when she finally gave birth to a son who wasn't born until something like ten years after their marriage, I think. And he uttered that most unromantic phrase, Madame, you have fulfilled our wishes and those of France. Antonia Fraser certainly explains some of the reasons why she was thought of as being aloof and at a time when the aristocracy was being questioned and falling out of favour. There's her three-room wardrobe for a start and her great staff of hairdressers and dressmakers. All the money she spent on clothes and jewellery and making over the various palaces in which she lived. But she cuts a very tragic figure in the last few chapters, appearing very pale and badly dressed at her trial, yet absolutely maintaining her dignity. 
despite the venom and the calls for vengeance that came from so many of the assembled onlookers. In the epilogue to the book, Antonia Fraser underlines the sadness that surely you have to feel on Marie Antoinette's behalf. She writes, The journey, that journey which had begun in an imperial palace in Vienna and finished in a squalid cell in Paris, was completed. And she goes on to describe the few effects that were left in Marie Antoinette's cell in the conciergerie after she'd been taken for her execution. Quote, a few linen chemises and corsets in fine toile, as well as some linge à blanchir, two pairs of black silk stockings, a lawn headdress, some black crepe, some batiste handkerchiefs, garters and two pairs of cotton pockets, which she used to carry her belongings inside her dress. She also left a box of powder, a big fine sponge and a little box of pomade, the single last remnants of a toilette that in all its pomp had once preoccupied the whole of Versailles. And then she goes on to explain her conclusion. Her weaknesses, though manifest, were of a trivial worth in the balance of her misfortune. Ill luck dogged her from her first moment in France, the unwanted and inadequate ambassadress from a great power, the rejected girl-wife, until the end when she was the scapegoat for the monarchy's failure. And, says the author, we ought to leave the last word to Marie Antoinette herself, who wrote in October 1790, just before her execution, these words. Oh my God, if we have committed faults, we have certainly expiated them. If we fast forward nearly a century to the Siege of Paris in 1871, there are some very graphic descriptions of that written in diary form by two brothers, Edmond and Jules de Goncourt. They describe, for example, on Sunday the 28th of May, driving along the Champs-Élysées in a cab and seeing a great crowd of people. They got out to see what was happening and discovered it was prisoners who had been taken at the Butte Chaumont and were now being marched along the street. There are 6,000 of them, a trooper in the escort told me. 500 were shot on the spot. They described the destruction they saw all around the city. Quote, there is smoke everywhere. The air smells of burning and varnish, and on all sides one can hear the hissing of hose pipes. In a good many places there are still horrible traces of the fighting. Here a dead horse. There, beside the paving stones from a half-demolished barricade, a peaked cap, swimming in a pool of blood. They walk along the river embankment to see that the Palais de Justice has lost its round tower and that the Hôtel de Ville is now a splendid, magnificent ruin. The buildings being destroyed, the statues cut down, the clock broken, tall window frames are jutting out into the air, forming jagged silhouettes. And, as they note with some irony, quote, in the utter ruin of the whole building, there shines on a marble plaque intact in its new gilt frame the lying inscription, Liberté, Égalité, Fraternité. And then a few weeks later, on the 1st of July, they describe the return of some French soldiers from Germany, who, despite the fact they are worn out and defeated, do seem pleased to be back at last in Paris. Quote, at the Gare du Nord, prisoners of war were arriving back from Germany. Pale faces, thin bodies in greatcoats too big for them, faded red cloth and worn grey cloth. This is the sight to which the trains from Germany are treating Paris every day. They walked along with little sticks in their hands, bent under grey canvas kit bags. Some of them were dressed in German breeches, and others were wearing a cloth cap in the place of the peaked cap they had left behind on some battlefield. Poor fellows. 
When they were turned loose, it was a pleasure to see them straighten up. It was a pleasure to hear their worn souls tread the pavements of Paris with a brisk, eager step. If you're interested in the Dreyfus Affair, which rocked the French establishment some 20 or so years after the Siege of Paris, then you'll probably enjoy Robert Harris's retelling of the story, An Officer and a Spy. It goes right through the story of the Jewish army officer, Alfred Dreyfus, who was convicted of spying and exiled to Devil's Island for life, despite protesting his innocence. But the spying didn't stop, and a few people began to suspect that a cover-up had been arranged and that Dreyfus had been picked on because he was Jewish and an easy target. And the novel's narrated from the point of view of another officer, Georges Picard, who sets about trying to find out the truth. It is a novel, but it sticks pretty close to the truth. Robert Harris himself wrote about this. Quote, None of the characters in the pages that follow, not even the most minor, is wholly fictional, and almost all of what occurs, at least in some form, actually happened in real life. So it will tell you the history, but it's also a spy novel, with all the tension that that implies. A Times reviewer commented that Robert Harris, quote, conjures knuckle-blanching suspense from a very well-known piece of history. The novel opens dramatically on the parade ground outside the École Militaire in central Paris when the verdict against Dreyfus is announced. Quote, Drums rolled, a bugle sounded, an official stepped forward, holding a sheet of paper up high in front of his face like a herald in a play. The proclamation flapped in the icy wind, but his voice was surprisingly powerful for so small a man. In the name of the people of France, he intoned, the first permanent court-martial of the military government of Paris, having met in camera, delivered its verdict in public session as follows. The following single question was put to the members of the court. Is Alfred Dreyfus, captain of the 14th Artillery Regiment, a certified general staff officer and probationer of the army's general staff, guilty of delivering to a foreign power or to its agents in Paris in 1894, a certain number of secret or confidential documents concerning national defence. The court declared unanimously, yes, the accused is guilty. The court unanimously sentences Alfred Dreyfus to the penalty of deportation to a fortified enclosure for life, pronounces the discharge of Captain Alfred Dreyfus, and orders that his military degradation should take place before the first military parade of the Paris garrison. A little later on, the narrator borrows a pair of opera glasses so he doesn't miss any of the details and sees how, quote, a giant of a man, a sergeant major of the Republican Guard, laid his hands on Dreyfus. In a series of powerful movements, he yanked the epaulets from Dreyfus's shoulders, wrenched all the buttons from his tunic and the gold braid from his sleeves, knelt and ripped the red stripes from his trousers. I focused on Dreyfus's expression. It was blank. He stared ahead as he was tugged this way and that, submitting to these indignities as a child might to having its clothes adjusted by an irritable adult. Finally, the sergeant major drew Dreyfus's sword from its scabbard, planted the tip in the mud and snapped the blade with a thrust of his boot. He threw the two halves onto the little heap of haberdashery at Dreyfus's feet, took two sharp paces backwards, turned his head towards the general and saluted while Dreyfus gazed down at the torn symbols of his honour. There are lots of descriptions of the main characters in and out of buildings in central Paris, walking along the river bank. 
even little moments, such as the narrator attending a concert at which it's hoped that the composer, Debussy, will be present himself. So it's a book from which you can glean a lot about Paris, glean a lot about the history, but definitely also with an element of tension and spy novel about it. So just to give that flavour, here's a second extract. The narrator is trying to go off to a secret meeting without being spotted by any of the people he doesn't want to know what he's up to. The next evening, I occupy the familiar corner table in the café of the Gare Saint-Lazare. It's a Sunday, a quiet time, a lonely place. I am one of only a handful of customers. I've taken precautions getting here, diving into churches, leaving by side doors, doubling back on myself, dodging down alleys, with the result that I am fairly sure that no one has followed me. I read my paper, smoke a cigarette, and manage to make my beer last until a quarter to eight, by which time it is obvious Devanine is not coming. I'm disappointed, but not surprised. Given the change in my circumstances since we last met, one can hardly blame him. I walk outside to catch an omnibus home. The lower deck is crowded. I climb up to the top, where the chill through the open sides is enough to deter my fellow passengers. I sit about halfway down the central bench, my chin on my chest and my hands in my pockets, looking out at the darkened upper stories of the shops. I've not been there a minute when I'm joined by a man in a heavy overcoat and muffler. He leaves a space between us. He says, Good evening, Colonel. I turn in surprise. Monsieur de Vanine. He continues to stare straight ahead. You were followed from your apartment. Next up, something completely different. A biography by the writer Hazel Rowley called Tete à Tete. About the intertwined lives of Jean-Paul Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir in Paris between the wars. Here, from the beginning of the book, is a description of how the two of them met when they were both philosophy students. They talked in bars and cafes, they walked in the Luxembourg Gardens, and strolled past the second-hand bookstalls along the banks of the Seine, where Sartre bought her some of the swashbuckling cloak-and-dagger historical novels he had loved as an adolescent. He was interested in everything, and never took anything for granted, de Beauvoir wrote later. How cramped my little world seemed, besides this extremely abundant universe. There are descriptions of lots of their favourite cafes, the Dome, and the Coupole, and the Select, all clustered in the same little area of Montparnasse. And Hazel Rowley writes about the life that they led, writing and talking and spending time in cafes. Quote, For the next few years, these cafes were as familiar to them as their hotel rooms. What never wearies me, Sartre would write, is to sit on chairs which belong to nobody, or, if you like, to everybody, in front of tables which belong to nobody. That's why I go to work in cafes. I achieve a kind of solitude and abstraction. There's lots of detail about their work, their lives, and the scandals they were involved in. As Hazel Rowley puts it, quote, They rejected marriage, they never lived together, they openly had other lovers. They were often friends with each other's lovers. On occasion they shared them. Their original agreement, not conveyed to the third parties involved, was that whereas their other loves would be secondary, theirs would be absolute. There's no doubt that there's much that was shocking about their lives, but no doubt either that, for a generation to come later, particularly in the 1960s, young people looked back at the openness, the frankness, the quest for individual liberty that Sartre and de Beauvoir pursued, and liked what they saw, and tried to follow suit. 
It's also true to say that their reputation was somewhat tarnished after their deaths when their correspondence to each other was published. People began to realise that they hadn't always been totally truthful. Hazel Rowley explains, quote, Readers were left reeling with shock. It turned out that these two advocates of truth-telling constantly told lies to an array of emotionally unstable young girls. Sartre called them little fibs, half-truths and total lies. And here was Beauvoir, who throughout her life had publicly denied ever having had an affair with a woman, telling Sartre about her pleasurable nights making love with young women. But, as she goes on to say, perhaps today the wheel has come full circle. Quote, there is a new recognition that they had the courage and daring to flout convention. They tried to live according to an ethic of freedom and responsibility, and they opened many doors. Maybe they strained at times against their own philosophy, but whatever their failures, few people have lived life more intensely. In the end, you'll have to make up your own mind. As the author says in her preface, quote, This is not a biography of Sartre and Beauvoir. I leave it to others to pay justice to their writing, politics, and the intricate details of their enormously rich lives. This is the story of a relationship. I wanted to portray these two people close up, in their most intimate moments. Whether or not we think it is one of the great love stories of all time, it certainly is a great story, exactly what Sartre and Beauvoir always wanted their lives to be. And finally, another work of fiction, a spy novel set in occupied Paris in 1942, called Under Occupation by Alan First. For an idea of the story, here are the opening couple of paragraphs from the book jacket. In the dark, treacherous city, the German occupying forces are everywhere, and so are French resistance fighters, working secretly to defeat Hitler. Just before he dies, a man being chased by the Gestapo hands a strange-looking document to the unsuspecting novelist, Paul Ricard. It looks like a blueprint of a part for a military weapon, one that might have important information for the Allied forces, and Ricard realises he must try to get it into the hands of members of the resistance network. If you want to feel that you're spending a few hours in occupied Paris, and you want to enjoy a thrilling spy novel at the same time, then this is a book you may well enjoy. Lots of little details ring true, Things like the moment when one character's in the cinema, which had been a good place to pass on a message or have a secret meeting, but which now, because the Germans have decreed that the house lights will remain on during all the films, knowing full well what was going on, really isn't that anymore at all. There's a reference at one point of somebody listening to the BBC, quote, volume down, because you would be shocked if they caught you doing it. As the narrator notes, if you looked carefully, you may well see some fascist teenagers, as he calls them, standing under apartment windows at nine o'clock in the evening, listening out for an English voice, because then they would know that there was a tenant in that building they could denounce to the Germans for listening to English-speaking radio. The atmosphere is always tense. Nobody knows what you can believe and what you can't believe. Gossip, says the narrator, became practically the only source of information. You had to remember that the newspapers were being edited by the occupying enemy. So, quote, one forever heard sentences beginning, my friend Louis says, or my doctor told me, or the woman who cleans my apartment has a friend who, hints are made about the terror going on all over the city. There are lots of empty flats to rent, for example, because, quote, some had belonged to Jews who had been rounded up by the police. Here you can learn quite a lot about how the ordinary Parisians were coping 
and try to just go about their everyday business in such difficult circumstances. This is a brief description of the people the narrator saw in the waiting room at the Gare du Nord. Quote, Some of the people in the waiting room, heading to the countryside in search of food, held up rolled-up burlap sacks and ancient valise to be filled with potatoes, turnips and carrots. Among the other travellers on the wooden benches, families leaving occupied Paris for occupied Lyon, hoping that life would be better there. Wehrmacht officers smoked and relaxed, knowing that the first-class carriages were reserved for them. There's lots about the problem of never knowing who to trust. The hero, for example, tells us about the fleek or the policeman, that, quote, with the fleek you never knew. Some were loyal to Vichy, some were loyal to France, some were loyal to themselves, so best cross the street. But there's a nice scene where he's followed into a department store by some Germans, and he has to think quickly about how to get out of the situation. And the description of what happens makes it clear not just that he's good at thinking on his feet, but that actually there's an underlying atmosphere of the French coming together and working against the Germans in little ways if they think they can possibly get away with it. So our hero gets into a lift, and this is what happens next. Quote, As he stepped out, he heard the Gestapo man saying, Excuse me, I'm getting off here. But he couldn't get off. The Parisian men and women in the lift jostled him and pressed around him, all of them staring straight ahead and pretending that nothing was happening. As the door closed, the officer struggled, but the crowd had him penned in, and now the lift departed. So, six different authors, five different periods of history, lots of different styles and genre, all an indication of the wealth of reading out there, if you want to fill in your knowledge of French history by reading your way through some excellent books. This is the penultimate episode of the Paris series. The next and final one is also going to be devoted to literature. I'm going to take half a dozen or so works of fiction, novels, short stories, which are set in Paris and all the more enjoyable for being so. I hope you'll be able to join me for that. For the moment, though, thank you very much for listening this week. Merci and goodbye until next week. Au revoir. <laughs>